Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. The newly appointed principal bassist of the Philadelphia Orchestra, Joseph Conyers, is a force to be reckoned with. In addition to being a world-class musician, he's an entrepreneur, educator, youth advocate, and bodybuilder. He finds the inspiration to be fully devoted to all of his passions by keeping things in perspective. What we do can become so manic and so consuming. Given the issues of the world, they are just notes. Yes, they need to be played in tune. And yes, they are part of this larger tradition that I love and value, but those notes They don't define me. They are part of what make me who I am and allow me to fulfill my purpose. You're listening to Speaking Soundly, a backstage pass to today's biggest stars of the music world. I'm your host, David Krause, principal trumpet of the Metropolitan Opera. During each episode, you'll hear me speak with inspiring performers about their creative process and the personal journey that led them to the stage. A few months ago, I was lucky enough to be playing extra with your orchestra on a very special day for you. It was the day that it was announced that you were to become the new principal double bassist of the Philadelphia Orchestra. I feel very honored that I was subbing there on that particular day. (laughs) Before that rehearsal started, it was announced... And you were applauded by all of your colleagues on stage. It was a pretty amazing moment. What was that like for you? Uh, Completely surreal. Absolutely surreal. I mean, I've been in the orchestra for 13 years. My affiliation with Philadelphia and the Philadelphia Orchestra goes back to 1999 when I started at Curtis. And it's just completely surreal. I don't know if I'll ever feel real because in a lot of ways I feel like So many aspects of my life have been a little bit of a dream. Like these things aren't supposed to be happening. 
um, this kid from Savannah, Georgia, who had never heard of the Curtis Institute of Music a few months prior, but ended up auditioning and, and being there for five uh, wonderful years. And I think, David, you, you know particularly how hard and how crazy this profession can be. And you'll have some people say, I love what you're doing. It's great. It's wonderful. Keep doing that. And then other people saying, you're basically saying, change everything about what you're doing and do it this way. So it's never felt like it, it was a thousand percent possible, but it's, it's really neat to be in this position. Uh, I'm really excited to be starting this new chapter. And I'm so fortunate to be doing with an orchestra I've loved for so much of my life. It's different when someone is promoted within the orchestra, right? Yeah. I mean, when someone new comes in, you don't know them. Right. But you, but like you said, you've been in the orchestra for over a decade. People know you. I mean, for yeah. better or for worse, they, they know <laughs> That's you. That's right. <laughs> it was obviously for the better because when the announcement was made, I could feel the warmth in the room as you were embraced by your colleagues of the Philadelphia Orchestra. But did you feel more pressure auditioning for promotion within the orchestra you were already in, as opposed to like auditions that you would take in a completely new town? And if you didn't win the job, there's a certain amount of anonymity there, you know, because you might not ever see these people again. It's always harder doing the audition on the home turf there's something about playing for your colleagues in that way where all of a sudden you are the one that's being judged. I use that word <laughs> intentionally. <laughs> judged and criticized by your own. That coupled with the fact I hadn't taken an audition in over a decade. I'm an old man in the sport. I think I was the oldest in the room by like 10 years of yeah. the finalists. And there are nine of us. So it was honestly one of the most stressful things I've done maybe the most stressful thing I've done ever. Just because, I mean, to your point, I've been in the orchestra for so long. I, I created this thing around bass playing and being on Instagram and teaching. David, have you ever teach students who are taking the same audition that you were? That's never happened. <laughs> How do you even start with that? I mean, knowing you, you're probably incredibly transparent about it, but right. was there some weirdness in that at all? I'll put it this way. What's most important is that the tradition is passed on. Whoever won that job, if it wasn't me, it would be someone I would have to deal with <laughs> in the job. And anything I could do to help influence that tradition in that way um, and saying this is how we do things and why we do things and we take this approach, for me, that was to my benefit and not to my detriment. You are such a better person than I am. <laughs> I know that I would have been giving my students false information <laughs> just so I could have a leg up at this audition. Well, now that you've navigated that to great success, yeah. you're tasked with leading the double bass section of the orchestra. And I want to ask you a fairly ignorant question about that, <laughs> about leadership. It's easy for me to lead a section of trumpets, for example, because everybody has an individual part. Right. Like they all have notes that have to fit into mine. And if I'm doing my job well, it's easy for them to fit in. And that's leadership. Yes. But I have no idea how you even start to lead a <laughs> section of players who are all saying the same thing. It's one unison voice. Yeah. Like, how do you lead from within that? Yeah. 
So the best way I always describe orchestra playing is like a flock of birds. <laughs> like you see them and how they move in such beautiful unison. There's always like a leader and they all just follow suit. And I would say it's just like that in the orchestra. We, we are so fine tuned in the string section of knowing what our colleagues are doing to the nth degree, what, how the length of the sound we're making, the front of the articulation, um, the, the type of vibrato that's being used, how we're gonna shape a phrase. Like, and as, as, as the leader with my own body language, I mean, what's great, like with this section, like I don't have to say anything, David, it's amazing. And it's like a flock of birds. And it's just, it's been a dream to be honest, because that kind of mutual respect amongst all of us makes for, I think a trusted space where we can then more easily and more happily, joyfully, and with all the camaraderie in the world, make music together. That's amazing. That's a pretty unique situation you have there. I'm really happy for you. <laughs> But uh, you're not from Philadelphia. You grew up in Savannah, Georgia, in a small community in terms of classical music. So I'm curious when and where your exposure to the orchestra was. Like, when did you get hooked? It was small, but we had a full-time symphony orchestra in the Savannah Symphony Orchestra. And my mom, who loved classical music and was never professional, but she sang in the Savannah Symphony Chorale. And I remember hearing music blasted throughout the house at an early age and then going to see the concerts and uh, seeing my mom perform and hearing the orchestra. And those are some of my earliest memories. I cannot tell you the impact that having an orchestra like that uh, and hearing them play at such a high level. And, I mean, literally just in, in, in my backyard, how pivotal that was in my growth as a musician. Uh, we used to have great artists. I remember Yo-Yo Ma coming through Savannah, and the teachers allowing us, we were able to go to his dress rehearsal and sit in the front row. And Andre Watts, he came, I played piano before bass, and he came on my 10th birthday and signed one of my piano books. Happy birthday, it was uh, April 20th, 1991. And because of that small community, there were some strong leaders in music education who created a whole community of young people who are super jazzed about playing classical music. Uh, between doing junior strings and senior strings and civic orchestra and then playing in the school orchestra and then going to the, the, the full symphony orchestra to um, volunteer usher, which is how we got to see the concerts for free. And when we volunteered usher, we got to meet the orchestra staff and talk with them. And they liked hanging out with all the young people, <laughs> the kids in the community. That was all part of my, my DNA at a pretty early age, which is really exciting. I'm just so thankful to have had that opportunity growing up. So it was your mom's love of classical music combined with this fertile ground yeah. which you grew up in. What initially drew you to the double bass? Ooh, well, that's a great question because I didn't know it was going to be the bass at first. There were lots of contenders for another instrument. But uh, I will tell you, I was always mesmerized by the sound of a string section. To me, it was like one of the most magical things on the planet was the sound of when you get a group of strings playing together. I remember sitting in the audience and the basses would come in. I'm like, oh, that sound, I was just enthralled. What was it specifically about the sound that grabbed you? The sound was always like a, like a warm, comforting blanket. And then how the bass, when they started playing, it was like turning on the subwoofer to the orchestra. And I, I remember that, that thought, and that was super attractive. 
I've all again, I always loved the strings. So like even in my first lesson, David, my very first bass lesson, I remember trying to do vibrato because I just wanted to sing like a string instrument in that way. I wanted to be part of that so badly. And um, I now this is this is where the small town part comes into play. There weren't a lot of other bass players, particularly my age, who were wanting to play. So it was hard to find competition, if you will, or one to compare myself to, to see how well I was doing. And I remember I would listen to Yo-Yo Ma recordings. And I was like, that's the way I want to sound. <laughs> that's literally, I, that, was my, that was my benchmark for my bass playing was Yo-Yo Ma. <laughs> well, that's, that's a pretty good benchmark, I would say, to aspire to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So how old were you when you started it? 11. Does the size of the bass forbid many young kids from even picking it up? So two things. I think the answer is yes. Uh, I also think that's why traditionally women or girls have been not encouraged to play the double bass just because of its size. As we progress through time, a few things have happened. One, there's a lot more social acceptance around <laughs> women and girls playing any instrument that they want to, which is fantastic. And two, the instrument itself, they are creating these smaller basses so that even kids can start the bass at the age of four on these mini basses. I mean, it's probably like a cello that's strung up with bass strings. Who knows? But kids are starting super young now, which is why the level keeps getting higher and higher. Because a lot of my generation started bass around 11. As we hear, a lot of bass players my age say, oh yeah, 11, 10, 11, 12, sometimes 15, 16 when I was big enough to play it. And now you're hearing a lot more saying they started in elementary school. <laughs> One last practical question about playing the yep. bass. If you knew then what you know now about transporting a bass, <laughs> like just schlepping it around from place to Ooh. place, would you have picked up the flute instead? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, we had a piccolo player in South Yorkshire who would just walk on stage with his piccolo in his tails coat pocket. I was so jealous of that. <laughs> he would keep it warm and just whip it out. Play his notes. I, David, that's a hard question because that's a kind of a mean question. I'm sorry. Because I love the bass. I love the bass community. But crap, it's annoying to get around with. <laughs> yeah, it, it must be rough. But it's obviously a labor of love. That's right. That's right. That's right. Well, you must also love the function of your instrument. Like the same way I'm attracted to the trumpet solos I play because... I need to be the person being heard always. <laughs> you don't get solos a lot. You provide the foundation for, well, for narcissists like me <laughs> to sound good when they're doing their thing, right? So there's something about your instrument that provides. Can you be a great bass player if you don't have that quality inherent in your personality? It, it's a great question. I've never felt like I need to have a lot of solos. So as I told you, I played piano when I was younger. I accompanied a lot. I played piano for uh, Sound of Music uh, in eighth grade, played the whole musical on piano. South Pacific, ninth grade, Once Upon a Mattress, full piano scores. I loved it because I've always enjoyed, and maybe this is why the bass worked so well for me, I've always enjoyed providing the space that was needed so stars like yourself could shine brightly. <laughs> <laughs> so that stars like yourself could feel comfortable to do whatever they wanted in the space and could rely 
a thousand percent that any accompanying as part of your performance would be there. Uh, and I, I've, I've worn that as a badge of honor. David, I'm one of these people, I don't need all the pomp and circumstance or uh, the spotlight on me. I don't need to have all that glory in that way, except for what gives me the satisfaction is knowing that I played a role in making all this wonderful music actually take place and happen at the highest level. And it's great. This selfless nature is not only evident when you're playing, it's a part of who you are. You didn't wait until your career was established to start giving back to the community and advocating for others. You did it while you were climbing the ladder yourself and you haven't stopped yet. What drives this passion for community and advocacy that obviously runs so deep in you? Yeah, no, that, that, that's a great question. My purpose of being an individual of this earth is not to make beautiful music. It's one of the things that I do. My purpose I found is how can I provide resources and opportunity for others to make the world better? That's what gives me life. That's what fuels me. And because I did these things in working with communities, in working with young people, that gave me the mental space to then grow musically to allow me to achieve such a position. I know it sounds counter to basically anything any, any teacher would probably tell <laughs> a student, but it seems to have worked. What we do can become so manic and so consuming. And it's just some freaking notes, David. Given the issues of the world, given all that's out there, they are just notes. Yes, they need to be played in tune. And yes, they are part of this larger tradition that I love and value and all the good things in that regard. But those notes, they don't define me. They are part of what make me who I am and allow me to fulfill my purpose uh, in a way that's meaningful. This is to me why the diversity in our space is important. And I'm not just talking about color, sex, orientation, anything like that. I'm talking about diversity of thought and experience, David. Because of my upbringing, it was very different, I think, than a lot of traditional classical musicians, having grown up in a Black Baptist church in, in the South in Savannah, where the music portion of our work was not about perfection. The music component of the church was about making a joyful noise. You don't join the choir by some audition. You join the choir because you want to share an experience in helping to uplift people with our music. Perfection is great, but it's not the goal. It's what we're trying to say, who we can reach and who we can move and how that can transform a community to be better. That's what music making is to me. Wow. Well, you're just one of the most inspiring people I've ever talked to. <laughs> Seriously, it'd be one thing if you were just an inspiring speaker or just a great advocate for your community or just a world-class musician, but you're all of those things. And on top of that, your biceps are bigger than my head. <laughs> you're a specimen. How long have you been a bodybuilder? When did you start lifting? It's so funny. I started in college and I started going to the gym a little bit and it was just for fun. And I think as I told my parents and my bass teacher from Savannah that I started lifting some weights, they got so excited because I was telling them about something that wasn't about music. 
And they're like, okay, do more of that. <laughs> I think they were just excited that I was doing something outside of music. So for me, it was a place where I could um, channel a lot of my obsessive compulsive tendencies about diet, about routine, about getting up in the morning and, and making it like something that I do every day. It just became super easy. And some people were concerned about, oh, if you lift as a musician, it's going to destroy your career. I was like, well, we'll take this one day at a time. And I'm still lifting 20 something years later. And so far, so good. Yeah, <laughs> that, that, um, That's incredible. I think most musicians are generally fit, like right. when I look at my colleagues, but none of them could deadlift a piano. <laughs> What's it like to get on stage with that kind of physicality? Is it, it must be very empowering. Oh, it feels, it, it feels good. It feels good because sometimes as a musician, we put so many hours in and then feel like we don't see the results. This is something I could pour hours and hours into and actually see the results. And that is just good for my brain, my psyche, my spirit. For me, it showed that something was working. <laughs> Even if it felt like something else wasn't. Uh, like this is, this is working. And I'm a big uh, advocate for uh, body awareness. Um, everything from yoga, Alexander technique to lifting weights. Cause I, I think it does make us better musicians cause it makes us more in tune with how we create the sound that we make on the stage, which I think is really important. You have got to be one of the most disciplined people I know. And I want to give you an example of it. We were playing Beethoven's Ninth Symphony together at the Mann Center in Philadelphia, and they provided dinner for us in between the sound check and the performance. And I was so excited by the trays of pasta and chicken and desserts. And you walk by eating an apple and drinking <laughs> only a glass of water. And I'm thinking to myself, this guy is a Marine. Are you that disciplined in every aspect of your life? <laughs> I think that's, that's a great question and very fair. Uh, again, I'm a, a, a pragmatist. If you want this, then you have to do this. And for me, like, well, if I want if I want to look in a certain way, then I have to do this. And then it's simple. So like when I was at school, folks were even at Curtis, like, Joseph, you practice all the time. It's like because I wanted a job. I wasn't gonna move back home. That was not an option. I love my parents dearly. Savannah's a hot place. Moving back to Savannah was not an option. So what do I have to do? Practice. So I practice. The end. On to the next thing. <laughs> Lifting weights, like. <laughs> if you want to look a certain way, it requires a diet. I do 30 minutes of cardio every morning. Um, I get to the point now where in my life, it's because it's the hardest thing that I do every day, it makes the rest of the day really easy. So things that we might see as stressful or whatever, um, it makes it a lot easier to uh, take. So it's, it's, it's a uh, um, relationship as, as far as my, my two passions that, um, that, complement each other. Right. Now, I'm going to quote you. You've said that technique is a means to an end in order to express your soul. Mm, correct. And being as disciplined as you are, I know that you've invested a lot in your technique. Where do you feel like you're able to express your soul best? Like all that work that you put in on a daily basis, yeah. when and where does that pay off for you? Oof, I think... It's when all those elements come together. When I play the concert, when I achieve the goal that I want, when my students are successful, when communities are brought together, I don't even have to see it. 
just knowing that it's happening, that's what feeds me. And it just makes me super, super happy. It gives me great, great joy. And now I'm getting to the age where I am beginning to see it. Some of my students are doing some really spectacular things out there in the industry and outside the industry. That makes me so happy because I know not only are they going to share their love of music, but they'll share their humanity as well. Um, and it's weird to talk about it out loud, but no, that's what it is. That's how it works. In a time like we have today where you watch the news and there's so much strife and so much arguing and so much craziness in the world, one can either just recoil and say, well, this is the way it is, or we could just all do what we can to play our part in making it better. Because I refuse to let the, for me, what I call the crazy or the evil or the whatever win out. I refuse. As long as I have breath, I refuse. And when folks look back on Joe Kahn and say, well, he did what he could to make it better. And that's all I can do. I, I couldn't imagine a better ending. So, Joe, thank you so much. <laughs> oh, no problem. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Speaking Soundly. If you like what you heard, please tell your friends about it. Spread the word. Be sure to follow, rate us, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. To keep up on future episodes, follow us on Instagram at speakingsndly and visit our website, artfulnarrativesmedia.com. Tune in next week as we hear another inspiring artist speaking soundly.